Man, Laura, I, okay, I don't know if you know this, but we actually are doing live worship. This is a live service. We didn't record, so we just got done listening to the band, you know, participating. So they're like right over there, if you haven't seen any of our pictures, but I love that we're still doing worship. Yeah. Like we've gone back and forth of like, is it awkward to do worship live stream? But the, you, there's just truths oh, when you yeah. sing them. Mm-hmm. Like I heard once that 80% of what we think about God comes from the worship songs that we sing. Hmm. And I'm just so thankful for, you know, Nils and Seth and Tim that are choosing these songs for us that are just so gospel rich. Mm-hmm. And just so they just anchor us, especially during a time and, and season in our society like this. Uh, that's just an awesome song. So they're right behind the camera. So, hey, guys, thank you so much. I love you so much. You guys are awesome. If you recognize somebody on our worship team tonight, go ahead and show them some love because they are awesome. They're driving sometimes like Elena last week on keys. She drove like two hours to be here. So (laughs) I don't know what it's doing for you on the other side of your computer or phone, but it's doing so much for Mm -hmm. me. I love it. Yeah, I've been loving it too. Singing along here. It feels weird because I can hear our voices because they're not mic'd in this room, but. Yeah, there's only four people off stage singing. Yeah. I don't even know, you know, Tim and Rihanna are mixing, so I don't even know if they're able to sing. We with might it, not but. sound good, but so we're just singing. The two of us singing yeah. with them. <laughs> well, okay. We love you guys so much. You are stinking awesome. Okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm really, really excited about tonight's yeah. topic. So we've been working through this Christian living series and we're coming across this topic tonight on money. Um, and, and money is such an important thing to think rightly about. Um, so statistically, 90% of divorces uh, are because of one of two things, either a sexual issue or a money issue. 90% of the reason of div- the people get divorced is that, um, which just highlights how tricky of a subject this, this can be to navigate. And we have to know what the Bible says, which is actually a lot. Um, I think Laura will say that Jesus taught more on this topic than, than almost any other topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to know what the Bible has to say about this topic so we can navigate uh, money in a way that honors God and is biblical. So I'm super excited. Before we jump in, so we, you shared, uh, like we did this breakout session actually at the spring conference. So if you were at the SALT conference and joined our, our breakout session, hopefully this is helpful you to hear. You can tune off now. Well, Just I kidding. think we tweaked a few things maybe a little. Yeah, it's always good to hear it twice. Hear it twice. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, uh, but you shared a summer or high school job or something Yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, after my freshman year of college, I came, went back home for the summer, and I worked at a temp agency, and one of the jobs I did was that I was a secret shopper. It was pretty exciting. I, I went and was supposed to buy alcohol and cigarettes and see if they would card me. And how old were you? I would have been 19 at the time. Okay. So So 19-year-old Laura. Yeah. So picture this. I didn't know. I was like a, I didn't ever drink underage. I was like a angel child legalistic, like I won't touch alcohol maybe ever. And so I walk into these like Buffalo Wild Wings, I think, would sit down at three in the afternoon because it's my summer job and be like, hi, um, it's just me. I'll, I'll have a Bud Light. Because obviously what I, it just was so obvious. So you'd sit down like in a booth. Yeah, by myself. At three in the afternoon. <laughs> in the afternoon. And they'd walk up and you'd just be like, I'll take a Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> or go to gas stations and ask for cigarettes, which I didn't know the first thing. <laughs> I had to ask somebody like, what kind of a cigarette would I smoke? 
It was, yeah, it was that great. Is, so did, did they tell you the brand? Did they give you, like, based yeah. on your personality type? Marblite, apparently. There you go. There you go. That just, that's, <laughs> that's everything you need for. to know about Laura is summed up in her <laughs> cigarette type. Yeah. Um, was it good money? I don't remember. You I don't mean, remember? it was easy enough. It was kind of fun. I felt like I was a... You know, working undercover. So yeah, yeah that's good money. Laura. Get paid that's to hilarious. lie to people. Oh yeah. <laughs> I uh, one of my favorite summer jobs. So, so I was at the watermelon stand that I shared, I think, last week. Uh, another state fair job I had was a trash collector for artistic waste, and I'd be writing like not the people that like pick up trash with the tweezers or whatever, but the people that empty the <laughs> fifty-gallon barrels. Which I'm a fourteen-year-old with this job, breaking like you know child labor laws left and right. I'm sure. And people would walk up. This literally happened to me. People would feel bad for me because I look 14 now, so I looked eight then. And people would walk up to me and just hand me cash. They're like, I don't know what is wrong or who's making you do this, but here's money. And they just hand me money. And, and you it, also got paid hourly for that? Oh, so yeah, So it's like of tips on, yeah, wow. Yeah, I got tips to nice. collect trash at the state fair. Rolling in the yeah, dough. Yeah, it was awesome. But we were like really efficient at it, so we were able to look at everything at the state fair, and it was great. So I love it. I worked five years at the State Fair. Those were great summers. Thank you, Gary and, and Gary Beatty. Love you, man. Um, okay, so actually talking about money. Guys, here's the main point for tonight. If you don't get anything, get this. When we see God as the owner of our money and ourselves as the steward, it changes everything. That's the principle that we need to live by as Christians. When we see that God owns it all and we are simply stewards of what he's entrusted to us, it will absolutely change everything about how you manage money. God is the owner, me as the steward, it changes everything. So uh, from there, here's where we're gonna, where we're gonna go. We're gonna kind of go big picture. How do, should we think about money? Hit some just general principles. And then we're gonna get really practical, um, working through basically four things that you can do with your money, which is give it, save it, spend it, borrow it. So we'll work through those four things and then we'll kind of land the plane with uh, thinking about how we need to uh, be stewards with what God's entrusted to us. So if you got a Bible, open up to 1 Timothy 6. Now, like I said, there's a ton of information about money in the Bible. It's all over the place. Um, but I think 1 Timothy 6 in, in one passage, it doesn't say everything, um, but it is a very helpful passage that really frames up the Christian view of finances and money. So if you got a Bible, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. So it's almost the last thing that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, um, who is actually uh, one of the pastors in the church in Ephesus. So the letter that we've been working through this, this spring, the, the letter to Ephesians. So Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells him towards the end of his letter. So he says this, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what's good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. All right, so from this passage, just to frame up how Christians should approach money, four principles. Uh, first is the uncertainty of wealth. Look at how he starts in 17. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Guys, 
Think about the situation we're in right now as a society. We can do everything we can in our power to, to try to set ourselves up to be well off financially. And then one event globally can completely shatter all of that. There is this illusion of security that wealth and money gives us, but all it takes is one event globally. And there are people that are in such turmoil right now. That is a real thing. And even some of you are in a tumultuous moment financially because of what we're experiencing. Wealth is an uncertain source of security. God wants us to be secure people, but he wants us to find that security ultimately in him because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and not in the uncertainty of wealth. Second, uh, it's God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. God gives us resources. He gives us good gifts to enjoy. And actually a couple chapters earlier, there's these people that are like demonic, heretical, like uh, false teachers. And the thing that they're teaching is to abstain from marriage and not to, eat enjoy, uh, not to eat good food that God has given us. And Paul's like, that's the false teaching to watch out for. God has given us gifts that we can wisely and appropriately with gratitude enjoy. And so God has resourced us. He's entrusted to us financial resources and others that it is right for us and okay for us to enjoy to an extent with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. So that's the second thing. The third thing is we should leverage our financial resources for good works. So verse 18, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Guys, one of, one of the realities of money is that we have an opportunity to leverage them for works that have eternal worth, that are good. And, and, and he says those who have been entrusted with financial resources should share those and be rich in good works, not just rich with money. Uh, the fourth thing is in a similar vein. It's verse 19. As we're being rich in good works, it's storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Um, store up true eternal treasure. Um, when you play Monopoly, it's like you could be, you know, a baller at Monopoly, which I am probably middle of the road Monopoly player. Um, the key is the orange properties or the pink properties. You got to get those. Um, it's boardwalk and park place are such a waste of time. I always wanted them. No, no, that's a waste of time. I've read, I've read blogs and like monopoly <laughs> forums on this. I was on you a monopoly would, forum even. over Christmas and it said park place and boardwalk statistically you lose the game. But here's the thing. You could be a monopoly baller, average middle of the pack, obviously loser at monopoly because she goes after boardwalk. Uh, and you can store up all this money, all this money, store it up, store it up, store it up, store it up. And then the game, the box is shut. And guess what? It doesn't matter. And so the, the stupidity is storing up something that you can't keep. And guys, our life is like a vapor. It's a mist. And, and just being obsessed with storing up treasures here on earth and giving no thought to what is, has eternal worth is like being obsessed with monopoly and giving no thought to what is after the game, life after the game. Guys, he's saying store up treasure that has eternal worth. Don't just store up monopoly money that is useless once the game's over. Guys, money here is useless once this life is over, but in true, what is truly life, store up what has eternal worth. So leverage your finances for what has eternal worth. Not just, not just comforts here, not just uh, uh, illusionment of security here, 
but what has true and eternal worth. So with that, uh, particularly, there is a warning of the perils of money that the Bible will mention. Mm -hmm. It's a good, it's, you know, it's a thing that is to be enjoyed. We should use it wisely. We should leverage it for good works, but there is a warning that the Bible gives us. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to be bad cup here and talk about some of the dangers of money. So money and possessions are neutral objects. It is, money is an amoral resource. It has the potential, like Stephen's saying, to be incredibly useful and incredibly good, but it also has the potential to be incredibly destructive in our lives. So yeah, as Stephen was mentioning earlier, Jesus talks about money all the time. It's actually like 15% of what's recorded in his teachings in the Bible is about money and about possessions and wealth. Uh, second only to his teachings about the kingdom of God. And he teaches more about money than heaven and hell combined. So obviously it, it it's a big deal, right? Why does Jesus talk about money so much? Jesus often uses money as a tool to reveal our true priorities. So it's kind of this window into a person's heart. It's deeply connected to our faith. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so we have money as kind of a magnifying glass to look into the state of our heart and, and what we're really worshiping. We have a tendency, a desire to worship money because we think it'll bring to us some of the things we seek for satisfaction in this world. So whether that's control, comfort, security, pleasure, um, belonging, power, status, reputation, things that can only be found in Christ, we will sometimes think we can find in money. Um, you might be thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not so concerned with money. I'm not worried about my wealth so much, but we're also talking about possessions, like what your money can buy. So think your phone, your car, your clothes, your shoes, all of these things. Um, I'm not a huge, I don't know a ton about science, but I had read somewhere that money can, so, okay, gravitational pull, how this works, like, like planets that orbit around each other or the moon that orbits around us, um, whatever object, like the greater the mass of that object, the greater the gravitational pull it has. And so the more and more possessions I have, the more I build up for myself in this world, the more I'm drawn to those things. I just start to orbit my life around them. Um, the more I, I like build them up in my life. So I really think that's a picture of the parable of the sower. When we read in Matthew, the parable of the sower and the soils, it's talking about four different soils that he plants seeds in. And one of them is seed that's sown among thorns that hears the word, but then is crowded out by the worries of the world and the seduction of wealth and becomes unfruitful. So money and possessions can be those thorns that grow up around our lives and just distract us from what we need to be looking at in Christ. Um, Money is also dangerous because it's deceptive and super subtle. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Like when was the last time somebody in your connection group unprompted confessed greed and desire for gaining more material possessions? Um, why don't we see ourselves as greedy? I think it's because we live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. So when we're looking around, we're not looking at the rest of the world. We're not comparing ourselves to other countries. We're comparing ourselves to people in that same bracket as us. We're looking up and down our dorm floors, up and down our street where the houses are like the same price as each other. We're comparing ourselves to them and to them we look pretty good. I don't, I don't feel very greedy compared to all these people. But 
as far as the world is concerned, we are rich. We are rich being able to go to college, living in a university town. Like we are among the most wealthy people in the world. So an example I saw in my life of, of not realizing how wealthy I actually am or, or comparing myself differently. I was on a vacation with my family a couple years ago in the Bahamas and we were on a yacht and it's like a nice yacht. And I found myself one morning walking up and down the marina, looking at the other yachts. And I was like, man, compared to the other ones, ours is pretty modest. We only have three bedrooms, three bathrooms. That one has a real nice swivel chair on the deck. And I, I realized I'm comparing our yacht to other yachts and thinking ours looks modest. It just was so quick how I was blinded to the fact that I'm on a yacht. So yeah, we're blind to the fact that we're greedy. And yet greed is incredibly pervasive in our society. So like Stephen said, it can be one of the leading causes for divorce. It's the number one thing couples say they argue about. And so we're in denial about greed and materialism. It's deceptive. It's subtle. We don't realize that we have a, that it can have a grip on our hearts, right? So it is so easy to let money rule your life. What we need to do is take dominion over our money before it takes dominion over us. Because we have sinful hearts and because wealth is deceptive, thinking that we can be in neutral is like being in quicksand, right? There's no, there's no neutral. If we aren't like aggressively thinking about how we spend our money and what we do with our money, we're moving backwards. So we need to be intentional with what we choose to do with this good resource God has given to us. Wow. That's great. That's great. And that was accurate science. Physics 111. Oh, good. Yes. You know, at, at, you know, not the best university in Iowa, but the second best university in Iowa. Iowa State Physics 111. Wow, that was a statement. That that was. I don't know. I'll uh, I'll let you know if my heart truly believes that, or if I'm just <laughs> trying to win your affections. I just everybody just logged off. They're done with this live stream. Okay, let me let me state it again. When you realize that God is the owner, and that you are the steward of your money, it changes everything. It really does. When you acknowledge that God is the one, like 1 Timothy 6 said, that provides all things, when you realize that he's provided all things and is the owner of all of your money and you are simply the steward of it, it changes everything. So in particular, it's going to change four very practical ways that we use money. So when you think about money, there's really only four things you can do with it. That there, there's other, you know, there might be things or tweaks to it, but there's really, at the end of the day, only four things you can do with your money. You can give it away, you can save it, you can spend it, or you can borrow it. So give it, save it, spend it, borrow it. Laura, when we think about that first one, giving, why do we give as Christians? Yeah, I'm just going to run through a handful of reasons why we give as believers. First of all, giving is a response to the generosity that has already been displayed to us in Christ. So 1 Corinthians 8, 9 sums this up beautifully. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So Jesus had infinite wealth that if he had not poured out for us, if he had held on to that for himself, we would have died in our poverty. And we're talking not just like financial wealth. We're talking spiritual wealth. We were a people in poverty and spiritually empty and worth nothing. And God gave us everything when Jesus poured out everything on the cross. And so we now receive his inheritance. So our giving is a response to what God has already lavishly done before us in being generous with all things towards us. We give because 
he first gave towards us. Second of all, like Stephen is saying, it's essential to understand God owns everything. So then I need to think of myself as like a steward, as more of a money manager, right? So the money that I have has been entrusted to me, not necessarily given to me, but entrusted to me so that I can use it for God's purposes. So I want to think through how would God want me to use this? If this is his, how do I use it for his purposes? The third then then is that giving is the best return on an investment because we're investing in eternity, right? So when we are giving towards gospel purposes and building God's kingdom, helping people who don't know him to know him, we are, we have the best return on investment. We're seeing souls being one um, as we give towards the church and ministries. We're able to care and walk alongside people that are hurting um, as we're giving towards physical needs, emotional needs. So um, it's a great investment in building God's kingdom then it's the only antidote I know of towards that materialism. So I know my heart tends toward greediness. I need to, in order to fight that, I need to give my money away. I just need to get it out of my bank account. It breaks this magic spell. It flips that that uh, like center of gravity from myself and my possessions onto God. Um, Like I said earlier, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So I want my money to be going somewhere that I want my heart to follow. And then finally, it's just a genuine joy and privilege to give. So Paul describes the Macedonians, um, a people in 2 Corinthians 8, who are living in um, hard times. They're living in affliction and trial in their lives. And it says in verses two through four, during a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. So that first verse, that's a crazy like math equation, right? He's saying here that joy plus poverty resulted in generosity. That's crazy because I usually think if it's joy plus abundance, that'll result in generosity, but it's in their poverty. Their joy caused them to want to give. And he's saying then they begged to give. So maybe he told them like, I don't know, you don't have a ton. They're begging for the privilege to be able to give because they know what a delight it is to be able to do that. Man. Yeah. I love that formula. You know, joy, the the affliction they're feeling and, and the poverty they're experiencing equals an abundant and, you know, an overflow of generosity. Yeah. Yeah. We so often it's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable and I have more than I need. So I'll reluctantly give some. It's like, you know, ah, oh, that's an awesome, the, the Macedonian church, what an awesome group. Um, I think a second question with giving is then how much and where do I give? And so the Old Testament uh, of our Bible, it gives us some very specific commands. It gives some specific commands to the, the Jewish community to tithe. Now, tithe literally just means a tenth, 10%. Um, and so in the Old Testament, you see commands to give a tenth, to give a tithe. Now, when you get to the New Testament, there's no explicit command to give a tithe. So that's led some to wonder, like, do we still have to give a tenth of our income? And the way I think about it is if, if in the Old Testament, you had an, an oppressed people group, oppressed people group. They were mostly, you know, they were coming out of slavery. They were displaced. They finally were able to settle a land. But even then there was, there's constant conflict and war, except during like the reign of Solomon. Um, You have an oppressed people group in the Old Testament who 
have less of the revealed riches of Christ than we now have. So if we who are not an oppressed people group, but in America, a, a statistically rich country, and we have the, the riches of Christ's revelation and what he has done for us in his grace, would the expectation of giving be more or less than an oppressed people group who knew less about how God was going to save us? More or less. And the conclusion I've come to is, man, I think that maybe the Old Testament doesn't give the explicit command to tithe because he wants to leave it open and not like make us feel like we can check a box, but actually that it's going to call us to even greater levels of generosity than a tithe. So I would say that the tithe is the baseline starting point for giving. That as you transition uh, into jobs this summer and begin receiving income, you should at a starting point be giving 10% of that to the local church you're a member of. Now, the reason why I say the local church you're a member of is Hebrews 13, 17 says, submit to your leaders and obey them because they're going to give oversight and an account for your soul. And so it's like, man, I want to support the local ministry that is directly shepherding me and that I'm a part of. And I want to commit to that ministry in the form of giving. So I say give 10% to the local church that you're a member of. And then beyond that, begin moving towards the other levels of generosity. So you got a tithe level and then you have a generous level and then you have a sacrificial level. Um, So for Natalie and I, uh, that's looked like giving a 10% tithe to the local church that we're a part of. But then beyond that, we have both regular forms of giving and sporadic forms of giving that we do, uh, that we've done throughout our marriage. So we give 50 bucks to Salt Company Ames because that ministry is a ministry that so impacted us, important to us. And we want to see that ministry continue to reach freshman Stephen and freshman Natalie. Um, and, and then we have missionaries that we support regularly. Uh, and then there's organizations that we just love and we think they're doing awesome work. So we give them one-time gifts from here and there. So that's kind of how we think about it. So 10% to the local church you're a part of, of the income that you receive. Beyond that, pursue generous, uh, a generous level of giving and a sacrificial level of giving to, to either the church that you're a part of to give even above and beyond a tithe or to to other organizations and ministries that you uh, have been particularly impacted by or just love what they're doing. So if that's give it, then we also have save it. Laura, what are just some general principles for saving? Yep. Big principle with this, again, is that God owns our resources. And so we're asked to steward them well and with wisdom. So saving for future needs is actually a very biblical concept. In Proverbs, it talks often about um, encouraging hard work, being industrious, planning for your future. Um, There are Proverbs that commend the ant for working hard to store up food during the winter, Um, saving little by little so that your wealth and your money can grow. So these are biblical concepts. It warns also against idleness, laziness, and being careless about your future and future needs. So we are able to have a goal of saving in order to meet those future needs. Saving now frees me up to continue leveraging my money for kingdom purposes down the road, right? It also keeps me from having to borrow later and it keeps me from being a burden on others later. So the big idea with saving really is wisdom as you think towards your future, not thinking towards security of how can I make sure I I have all I need, but really thinking wisdom, uh, yeah, what needs will come up that I can think towards right now. That's great. Uh, I think just a really practical recommendation is to save three to six months of uh, expenses. I think that's just 
a great practice. And then to save for future purchases and, and future investments such as retirement. It's a great thing. Um, okay, so we've done give it, we've done save it, spend it. What are some principles, Laura, as you think about spending um, as a Christian approaches that? Yep. Big idea here is don't spend more money than you have. Boom. Easy. Pretty simple. <laughs> Start with giving and then determine your like standard of living based off of what you actually have in the bank. And then don't go beyond that. So then what are we supposed to think about like guilt about? Is it okay for me to spend money on myself then? How do I think through those things? Is it okay that I have a TV or go on vacation? Things like that. Yes, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Those things can be bad. Spending money on yourselves, personal possessions, things like that can be bad if it is done um, like at the expense of being generous or if it's in order to store up um, like a means of identity, power, a sense of meaning in your life. But God gives us gifts to enjoy, not to put our hope in, but to enjoy. So we're to receive them with thanksgiving and gratitude and delight as we walk in that. So a couple practical steps then when it comes to spending, I'd talk about budgeting and credit cards. So budgeting, there's wisdom in putting together a budget. That's essentially telling your money where it's going to go before it tells you where it's going to go. Thinking through like, okay, how much am I going to give each month? What are my fixed expenses monthly? And then what on top of that can I spend on clothing, groceries, things like that? So if that's hard for you, pull out some money from the bank and buy things in cash. And when it's gone, you're done for the month. So start thinking through budgeting and spending reports. Credit cards then, again, they can be good and useful. But they're also a form of fooling ourselves into thinking we have more money than we actually do. So don't be trapped into the lie of credit cards. Um, if you're going to use a credit card, which they can be helpful, pay it off every month. Don't get sucked into credit card debt. So be wise. Again, spend money you have. Don't spend money you don't have. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, the fourth thing you can do with money is borrow it. Um, and so here's just some general principles with borrowing. The, the, at the end of the day, here's the guiding principle as we think about taking out loans. Uh, don't take loans out on things that don't have a return. That's the general principle with loans. Don't take out a loan on something that doesn't have a return. So I categorize some different loans into three categories, good loans, bad loans, and then unwise or loans to go in with caution. Um, so good loans are things like House mortgages, they typically have a, a great return on investment. Um, they have equity. They appreciate in their value. So home mortgages. Um, it's also difficult to buy a house without a loan. Um, there are some people that do that, but it's difficult. Um, and, then, and then some or most student loans can be in the good loan category. You getting an education uh, statistically is going to put you in a position to be able to make more money. Um, that's not always the case. And so some student loans are, are good. Um, some are bad. Like if you're studying dragons at UNI, like what are you doing with your life? Like don't do that. Don't do that for so many reasons. They, I don't know. Dragons aren't real, right? Or are they kind of real? I guess the, we'll never know. there's the dragon that's kind of in the book of Job. So, so that's good loans, typically home mortgages and then student loans, depending on the major and, and the particulars of it. Then there's bad loans. So I went to my bank the, you know, a couple of months ago when I, we were prepping for the SALT conference, and I just looked at the list of loans that you could take on my bank. And they're good loans, but then there's some bad loans. And there were literally these, these were real. There was something called the happy loan, the anything loan, the lifestyle loan, the pay break loan, the homestyle loan. Uh, at other times I've seen vacation loans, 
my kind of loan. Yeah, it's like those things don't have return on investment. A happy loan, like you won't get anything back from that. You're just going to be paying interest. That's a horrible loan. And all you're doing is trying to live at a level that you actually can't live because you aren't comfortable with being content or you want to impress people. So don't take the happy loan. That's a horrible loan. Then there's loans that are unwise or you should be cautious going into them. Um, a lot of people have vehicle loans. Uh, I would say that that's a loan that you should go into cautiously. The reason is that vehicles depreciate in value over time. And so if you take a loan on like a seven-year loan, which is a real thing, they're growing in popularity on a $60,000 truck, that truck is going to depreciate in value. Say when you're 22, a seven-year loan on a $60,000 truck, it's like, that's unwise and probably wrong because you're probably doing it for wrong reasons and you're just not willing to drive the beater, like the $2,000 beater that would get you from point A to point B. But then there's other times where you have a legitimate need for transportation. You need just a, a, a smaller loan or a loan with a shorter term to help get you um, to the place for a car. And, and so I'm not going to completely say all vehicle loans are off limits, but use caution. The shorter that can be, you know, think Four years is typically the extent, the longest you'd want one, and and really ask yourself if it's the the caliber or level of vehicle that you actually need before you take that loan. Um, I think the heart of the issue for so many of these things is is just, are you content with what you have? Um, are you, is there greed? Is there selfishness inside your heart? Guys, when we think about money, here's what it all comes down to: if we realize God is the owner and we are the steward, it changes everything. And when that happens, when we're talking about spending habits and borrowing habits and giving habits, uh, just pull back for a second. The average income in America is $48,000 a year. So not everybody will you know, get that or start with that, but the average income is $48,000 a year. So if you implement the practical steps that we've said and, and tithe on that and just start at a tithe level, you at a base minimum will be giving $4,800 a year. That's a lot of money. And you could do a lot of things with $4,800 a year. And if you give $4,800 a year, there will be things that you absolutely won't be able to do. And there will be things that your friends and your family and your peers will be able to do, but you won't be able to do because of your giving level. And here's what it will come down to. Are you okay living not like them? Are you okay living in a way that is different from those around you? Because if you embrace biblical, a biblical pattern for giving and saving and spending and borrowing, your life will look different than the peers around you. And it will all come down to if whether or not you're okay with that lifestyle. Because you will be giving thousands of dollars while they're spending thousands of dollars. And average consumer debt is over $8,000, which means that they are financing a certain level of living that is even beyond what they can afford. So not only will your giving not allow you to live like that, but your borrowing won't allow you to live like that. And so there's going to be a, you know, potentially a $13,000 difference between your lifestyle and their lifestyle if you simply just tithe. And will you be okay with that? That's what it will come down to. Will you be able to, to have a content spirit before God? 
Because guys, when you think about who we are and where we are in the world, the average income in the world is a little over $9,000. I believe it's $9,600. The average income, like I said, in America, 48,000. We make over four times more on average than anyone else in the world. We need to be, uh, to look at that with a sober mindset that this command that Paul gave to Timothy, command those who are rich to store up treasure that has eternal worth, to give and be willing to share. Guys, he's talking to us. Even if you just make $48,000, we're not talking about crazy money. We're talking about average money. You'll still be making over four times than the rest of the world. And there's going to come a day when we will be held account to what God has specifically entrusted to us. And as Americans, God has entrusted to us the means to make money, and he's entrusted to us money itself. And how will you steward that? How will you be faithful with what God has entrusted to you? God is the owner, we are the stewards, and when you see that, it changes everything. Guys, we have to be people that faithfully steward what God has entrusted to us. And guys, when we look at Jesus, who had all the riches you could ever want, all the heavenly riches, and he looked at us hurting and lost and broken, and he said, I'm going to give it all up so that I can go get them. He became poor so that we might have true riches in him. When we see that and it penetrates our heart, we will be people who will begin to be able to posture ourselves before God and open our hands with the resources that he's entrusted to us to steward. And when that happens, we are going to see incredible gospel movement. And we are going to be a people that are able to, to love our neighbors in incredible ways. We're going to be able to face situations like the coronavirus and the economic impacts because of it with a, a, a centeredness and a poise because we're not trusting in the uncertainty of wealth, but we're trusting in the certainty of the wealth that we have in the cross. Guys, let's faithfully steward what God has entrusted us. He's the owner. We're the stewards. It changes everything. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, uh, I confess. God, there are so many times that I do not get the Macedonian formula right. The, the formula that Laura brought up, that they, out of their extreme affliction, extreme poverty, let that overflow in generosity. And God, I am a guy that just, because I either want to find security in money or I just want to find comfort in money, I get that formula screwed up. God, and so often I find myself comfortable and over-resourced and still unwilling to let go of a dollar. And God, I pray that we would be pace setters, that people would look at Salt Company Cedar Falls, that churches would receive seniors from this ministry and be blown away at how they leverage their resources for the kingdom. God, we are the rich. And there's so many times we get this wrong. But God, help us to, to give in a way for kingdom impact, to leverage what you've given us and entrusted to us, to see people come to know you, to see believers strengthened in their faith, and to see people sent out to the ends of the earth. 
God, we are so rich in so many ways, even beyond money. We're rich in, in our access to the Bible and our access to the gospel. And there's so many people who have none of that, who don't have money and they don't have access to the Bible and they don't have access to the gospel. And we want to be a ministry that, that leverages everything we have for you. And God, this is something we have. Let us be used by you, God. Let us be a ministry that's used by you. Kill the greed that's resident in our heart, whether it manifests itself in spending or whether it manifests itself in, in hoarding. Kill it. Let us be used by you. And let us use what you've given us for your sake. God, we love you. Amen.